0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Monday, November 9th, 2009, and this is the Future of Education, and we're sure glad you've joined us. Today we're going to be talking about Not School, a program uh, started, I think, in the UK and now uh, uh, global. Uh, We have Jean and Johnny uh, from the UK joining us. We have Bruce uh, from Michigan, and we have Beth and Glenn also, I think, in – are you in Michigan, Beth and Glenn? the Laughing County of the U.S.?
1: We are, just outside of Detroit.
0: Oh, good. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to do a brief introduction. Uh, This session is sponsored by Illuminate and Learn Central. Learn Central is the um, educational social network created by Illuminate. Uh, I'm the uh, Tom, the MySpace Tom guy at Learn Central. If you join Learn Central, you immediately become uh, my friend. But do uh, look there. Lots of fun. You can run your own webinar series uh, all for free. And coming up on Future of Education, we have some great uh, shows. Tomorrow, Henry Jenkins joins us. On Wednesday, uh, the authors of *Rethinking Education: The Age of Technology*. Um, on Thursday, Larry Cuban, retired from Stanford, um, uh, to give some perspective on technology and education. November 19th, Howard Rheingold comes back for more brainstorming. Uh, then in December, Dan Willingham on why students don't like schools. Bob Compton on two million minutes, although he's scheduling that date, so we have to look for a new date. Curtis Bonk on The World is Open, Angela Myers on Classroom Habitudes, Sherry Toledo on December 9th, and much, much more. Um, Ken Robinson was our big, uh, fun uh, piece of news last week. He's coming on in January, but you can see other great, great guests coming on as well. If this is your first time at Illuminate, for those of you who are watching live, just want to make sure that you know this is a participative environment and we hope you will participate. This is a Monday morning, so we don't expect a a normal crowd, but if you, uh, so that may be good. So if you would like to say something, just be sure to go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is working well. Uh, You have below the participant window these little emoticons for uh, expressing yourself. You can smile, applaud, Um, show a confused face or give thumbs down. The bigger (laughs) hand with the green up arrow is how you raise your hand, and you let us know that you want the mic. Um, If there is chat in a a group of this size, we may not have a lot of chat, but it's often easier to see if you go up to View Layouts and select the Wide Layout, and it will show your chat window a little bit bigger. Uh, Once you do take the mic, there's an audio box, and uh, you click. It's like a walkie-talkie. You click on that mic to talk, and then you click it off when you're done. So just for fun, let's see who's here. I'm going to give you all permission to modify the whiteboard. You can uh, click on the wand with the red star to the left of the map, and then you can click on the map to let us know where you're listening in from. We'll have one for sure from the UK there.
2: So it looks like someone's listening in from Brazil. Is that true? That would be fun.
0: Glad to have you here, Carol. I spent a year in Brazil in high school on an exchange program. I won't, uh, I won't butcher Portuguese, but uh, I do still speak, speak it to some degree. A lot of fun to have you here. Okay. So uh, this is a really fun session for me. We're not quite sure where we're going to go uh, today, but um, let's start with Jean and Johnny, and have the two of you introduce yourselves. Uh, and, and for those who are listening or who listen to the recording who have never heard of Mount School, can you give us the, the short history of what you've done and, and where you're headed? And then we'll um, move forward and look at uh, Michigan and then talk about the, the picture as a whole for the future.
3: OK, well, good evening to a damp and dark and it's a evening um, somewhere near London in, in darkest Dampstead. Um, Johnny you like it to Not School in the year 2000? Um, and, and put the first students on what was a virtual e-learning project for kids who haven't been in school for a long time. And it was a big, big government risk. It was a research project. Um, we were working in the university. Well, I wasn't actually, brought in to do it. And um, the whole point was there were awful lot of kids who were in the same school, and, and people were getting quite worried about it, but they didn't really know what to do. And they gave us some money and, and told us to get on with it, really. And by, I think we... January of that year we put 100, roughly a hundred young people online and uh, ten years later we're up to something like five and a half thousand. A so over six thousand so and all lot of young people, all of whom have been excluded from traditional education. Um, in order to do it we had to take a completely different approach. We knew that school didn't work for them. We hadn't got a clue why school didn't work for them. We had to turn all the sort of basic tenets of what school is on its head call it not
4: school and start from a completely different pretext. I think it's better to make it very simple. Um, we're in an age when technology allows us to do so much um, there's so much opportunity to do things differently. What we did that was right was we, had, we didn't look at technology as the way to get to an end. We looked at the end we needed first. So we said, what makes these young people tick? What makes these young people want to learn? How do we do it? And then we said, how can technology make this happen? Um, and I think one of our frustrations is 10 years down the line. We're still seeing people trying to build virtual learning environments that are exactly the same as we did 10 years ago. And frankly, <laughs> through the first stuff we did 10 years ago, down the drain, yeah. because we got it wrong, because we didn't start with that. And over, over the 10 years, lots have changed. Um, Without being too technical, when we when we began, we had ISDN lines in half our houses, and very few people had a decent connection. Now, because the UK is very lucky, we have um, broad broadband in 99% of the population. There's so many differences, but what hasn't changed is the way we approach things. And I don't know what the next slide is, but it might be appropriate to bring up one of our slides.
3: Yeah, the one. Are you driving
4: us to Steve or Steve, Steve? are you driving us? Oh, that's a I'm nice one. Yeah. I
3: think done with that. One of the basic things is that if you can't take the young people to the learning, you take the, young le- the learning to the young people and that's what the technology is all about. And once you've got them make the learning available to them, then you have to start thinking about how do we actually engage them in learning and the technology is part of it, um, but that isn't the basis of what it's all about.
4: So actually the three main rubrics of what we do are on the screen now. Um, We need the young person to have the feeling that they are learning where they like, learning what they like, and learning when they like. And so we're using technology to break down all those hindrances that exist in normal schooling. I don't think normal is perhaps the right word for schooling, but what we all think of schooling. To allow the young people to express learning and investigate learning their way. But if you look at those three things in front of you, they're not about technology, they're about the, uh, the uh, attitude of young people and their experiences and how they relate to learning.
0: Can I ask a quick question? Of course. So, uh, let's, uh, tell us exactly who these students are, because as I recall, it's not just students who are not in traditional schools, but they also have to have not had available to them alternative schooling programs, is that correct?
2: Certainly for the first
3: three to four years, Um, but the government relaxed what we were allowed to do when they saw how successful it was. Um, So in the beginning we only took young people who had been out of school for years and have failed everything else. So we'd find young people who haven't been to school since the age of six and, and so forth. That has changed and so it should because here we are much better uh, finding kids who aren't in school, that, that's not to say they're perfect, because they're not, we're still finding kids who aren't in school. Um, but the sorts of young people we would get would be um, mental health kids, uh, you know, they're phobic, can't go to school, um young carers who won't need the house, won't need the parent, or whoever it is they're caring for, kids who are have been excluded and no school will take them, um, and there are a number of those, and that could be anything from some dreadful crime, a knife crime or gun crime, to even in some parts of the country having a hair too long and being kicked out of school. I mean, it's crackers, but there is no rhyme right or reason in some of those cases as to why young people aren't in school. It's very, very a varied picture across the country. Um, we have people, young people who are terminally ill but if they are accepting education they wouldn't join us. They would only join us if they said, okay, you know, I'm 15, I'm dying of cystic fibrosis, my life expectancy is short and I don't want to spend it in school. But, you know, we can persuade them to learn and give them a purpose of their life. So it's a whole range of young people. They're all very different. And as they say, on their own, they're quite delightful. Um, oh, I should say we have quite a few young know, people with special needs and increasingly a larger number in the autistic spectrum, which I don't think we experienced at the beginning, but we're finding that this kind of approach works well with those sorts of young people.
0: And what's the age range?
3: Our age range in theory is, is a graph. So the youngest is 13 and the oldest is about 17, but the majority are 14 to 16, the vast majority. Um, there will always be a few outside of that spectrum. It's shifting a little. I think we're beginning to get more post-16 because we're all leaving age is changing and people are taking more responsibility for segmented young people who have nowhere to go post-16. So it's shifting a little bit, but generally speaking, 14 to 16.
0: And do you have any statistics that would give you an idea of how many students are in this position, uh, whether you're reaching them or not? I mean, what percentage of students uh, in the UK are, are, would qualify to be in the program?
3: Uh, um, uh, it's frightening. Um, we wrote a paper some time ago. Uh, we have an interesting scenario in England where if we don't like the answer, we don't count it. So if you say to, Jeff can say this because I'm not in mean, England, if you say to a politician, oh, you know, you've got a problem with kids who are out of school or a problem um, because, you know, home educated kids aren't, of them aren't being home educated, they're just taking off role, they'll say, where's the statistics to prove it? And you turn around and you say, well, actually, you know, you don't count them. So as the a whole catch-22. Um, there's an increasing number of young people who are technically in fact, home educated but they're not. Um, they are illegally persuaded to come off school role because schools actually don't want them. Um, we have we think about 50 to 60,000 in the category, but again we have a large number on what we call part-time timetables, except the timetables exist but the kids don't follow them. So there's still quite a lot of people being shunted from what we would say for the post from one place to the other. In truth, what we don't like, we
0: don't count, and the numbers are a lot bigger than you could find stats on. I, I, I I'll uh, I'll wait until we get to Michigan, but I'm very curious to see how those statistics uh, compare, the figures compare, and uh, it seems to me that um, you're talking about a, uh, probably a pretty large population, and you said 50 to 60,000, and you're yes. serving somewhere close to 1,000, as I recall?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean don't forget we have a lot of alternate provision here and not everybody is for not school and we've always had to work on the basis that everything else would fail for them. So, you know, they might go through a whole raft of other stuff before we finally get them. Government policy here is that every child should be in school, and in school is clearly defined in the place where young people go. Um, so you know, what we're doing actually is outside government policy, but is recognised by government policy as full-time education of sight because they know it works and they know there are kids that they're not to serve. And inevitably, you know, you will get a conflict between policy and practice. Practice, what works and what government would like to work. Because, you know, policy is one thing, but it's always going to be a broad brush attempt at managing an average, when actually the huge number of young people are average. And if you look at um, the sorts of people that didn't go to school, well, you know, you know, Richard Branson, um, you know, all sorts of entrepreneurs didn't actually go to a traditional schooling route. Jamie Oliver, I believe, did a hike after he had a you know, set special needs being um, uh, having literacy uh, problems is dyslexic and didn't like and I quote here from revisiting he television didn't like being sent down amongst the VIPOs. A lot of kids feel they've failed, um, they feel upset, they have low no self-esteem, and because of that just and they just stop going to take a walk.
0: So tell us how uh, tell us what, what how you qualify or quantify the success. Um, do you, can if somebody says to you, if this "Is this a successful program, how do you respond?
3: You can have hard measures and you can have soft measures. I mean, the hard measures are easy. You know, 98% we engage, um, about 80% go back to college, and we work jolly hard to get them into college. We don't wave a wand and say, oh, no, you know, you're leaving, now go to college. Actually, we negotiate what reasons to get them on college places. Um, about 98% will get point-carrying qualifications on our national framework, and they are young people who wouldn't have got anything at all. And those are hard measures. But you also have to measure you know, the child that actually the house who can cross the road, walk across the road and go to a shop when well, they've spent three years, you know, never going outside. Um, measuring self-esteem is always quite difficult. Um, you know, I suppose a long-term success me- measure is, are they? a net contributor to the economy, I think. Um, but are, are there successful young person um, their right is perhaps more important, I think. And we do have to look at measuring both the hard and the soft measures because we're actually talking about people, individuals and their lives, not just about stats.
0: So um, did the inclusion <laughs> trust come after NUD School? Is it sort of the expansion of the program? And is it related to Beth and Glenn's Inclusion U.S.?
4: Okay, first, first off is easy. When we began in 2000, we were a, a research unit in university. We were given some funding from the central government to find the answers to looking after these young people in and trying to engage in learning. After five years the government said we can't really give you any more money because it's going really well but you're not really researching anymore are you? We would like you to move out, uh, uh, set up a charity to house the successful Mott School but with an understanding that we use our experience to look elsewhere and do other things. So in 2005 we set up a vision Trust which is a not-for-profit <laughs> charity to house the Mott School project but also to allow us to investigate things that are like Mott School. Uh, doing lots of other projects along the same sort of theme. Um, so that's the first half of the question. The second off of the question, I suppose we also to invite John and Beth to join in really. Um, we, one of the things we're very clear about is, if you centre your learning around the young people, it doesn't matter where you are in the world because you put the young people first, so if they're different, you behave differently. And One of the great things we've done over the last couple of years is start to work with people in different parts of the world who Um, on some levels are very similar to us, but on other levels, often to do with the way the uh, government organizes education. That sort of thing is very different. And watching what we think is the um, simple recipe work pretty well elsewhere, and that's where (laughs) Beth and Glenn come in. If it's okay, I'd like to bring
0: uh, Bruce and... um, um, Sorry, Beth and Glenn into the conversation at this point and kind of uh, tell us what the connection is and and what your goals are. And then if it's okay, Gene and Johnny, can we go back to, uh, after that, go back to looking at how it actually works and then compare what's being done in the U.S. with what you've done in the U.K.? Mm -hmm. Of course. Okay. So, Bruce, do you want to introduce uh, your team?
5: Yes. um, My name is Bruce Umstead. I work for
2: the Michigan Department of Education, and in 2007, My audio. Yeah,
0: we, we had that same problem, we but you came back, I think you're back.
2: Okay,
5: so uh, I worked for the Michigan Department of Education and the area of educational technology in 2007. Uh, we saw uh, Gene and Johnny's presentation at a, a conference called COSIN, and we realized that they are meeting the needs of students that we have here in the United States, particularly in Metro Detroit, where
2: we do have... Losing you again. (laughs) Should I switch to the phone?
0: Sure, sure. I'll turn the phone conference on. Hang on one second. Don't anybody close that window? Looks like poor Jim dropped off who was having connection issues. Okay, and Bruce, do you know what to do to uh, get to the phone? You turn your microphone off, and then you click on the little handset with the phone icon to dial in, and it gives you the number to dial
2: in. And while Bruce is doing that, Beth and Glenn, do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure okay hello hello right ahead okay uh, well, my name is Glenn Taylor, and i uh currently work for the Westwood community School hello. Uh, school. I think hello? <laughs> We've got overlapping overlap in conference calls, I
1: think. Yes, we are having an overlap in conference calls. <laughs> I don't think that's coming from us either. Can the other party on the line hear us? I can hear somebody.
2: Can
1: you hear me now?
0: We can, but it sounds this like we have ours. an overlapping conference call. Do you do want, want us to hang up?
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> so this is Steve okay. Hargadon, and I thought, our, I thought this was our line just for Classroom 2.0 and Future of Education. Um, did, did we get the wrong number oh, in? Oh,
2: Steve,
1: this is Tamara. Oh, hi. No, it's Tamara, Steve. Hi, Tamara. Oh, hi. Um, no, we're doing a webinar run through at this particular second, <laughs> so we just both scheduled at the same time.
0: Well, that's funny because I thought we had um, our own our own line, and and uh, so I apologize. But um, are you going to be long?
1: Uh, I I will be until two o'clock definitely. I actually had another one from two to three, but I can reschedule that one.
0: No, 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 we're, we're fine. Bruce, we'll, we'll just have to put you back on the mic and, and hope that it uh, that it does well enough for you to get through. Sorry about that.
2: Sorry.
0: Okay, bye.
2: Freaky. You were just called freaky. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know what
0: that is. I I think we have a, um, a private line in. I don't know how they got our number, but it's uh, someone else from Illuminate. So uh, rather than worry about trying to figure that out, Bruce, I'm going to let you come back on. You're going to have to click back to, to click that handset icon off, and we'll let you try again. And Beth and Glenn, we'll let you keep going. Sorry for the interruption.
2: It's OK. Uh, so as I said, I'm, uh, my name is Glenn I'm uh, currently the director of Cyber High School, as well as the Now I've lost your audio. So. I can hear you now. I'm wondering okay. if anybody else is having the same problem. Are we having a technical
0: challenge day? I haven't had one of those in a long time. time. Okay, I well, maybe we
6: are. Okay, it looks like it's back now.
0: Yeah, so yeah. just raise your, raise your, mic, your volume mic volume just a little. Yeah, do, you know do did. it on the slider. Perfect. Yes, I, I just did. There we go.
6: All right. Good. So again, I'm Glenn Taylor and I'm uh, the director of the Cyber School and and with me we have Beth Baker from Wayne uh Risa. From Wayne Risa
1: And well, one of my background is a little bit um, different than um, Glenn's and that is I started working at the county level and um, looking at the dropout crisis in um, Wayne County. And that's what led me to um, start conversations with um, Jean and Johnny. And then um, both Bruce and I met Jean at the same time and and we both had an aha moment. Bruce, did you want to introduce yourself?
5: Well, we'll Mm -hmm. try again. This is Bruce Umpstead from the Michigan Department of Education. And yes, Beth Beth
2: and I actually met after we walked out of the session for non-schools, the first time we had met because I had just come into my position. Okay, my audio, my audio keeps going in and out, so Beth, you tell a story and I'll you not. <laughs> not. <laughs> <Darn>. <laughs>
1: Sounds like. Um, and, and so what happened was we were probably sitting in a room, oh, maybe it was like 900 people at least, and um, the room emptied out and um, I was thinking, oh my goodness. I, I just, we had just heard um, a panel um, speaking on the future of online learning and um, Jean was speaking on it. And Jean was so far out there but exactly dead on but nobody could seem to wrap their minds around it and they were all just like oh, whatever and they left the room. I was standing there stunned and I turned to my right and there was Bruce standing there stunned um, and, and we looked at each other and then and introduced ourselves found out we were both from Michigan and, and that we were both um, amazed that this was sitting in front of our faces for so long it just makes so much common sense. Um, that uh, for, I guess from there we just started working towards bringing a um, something, we didn't even know if it would be not school, but something like not school uh, to Michigan.
2: So
1: Bruce, did I cover it?
5: Yes, it was a long two-year process where several people, several prominent people told us we would not be able to do this. But.
1: <laughs> That's true. We sat so in Washington DC and people looked across the table at us and said you will never bring not school to the US. Yeah.
0: So they were specific about not bringing not school or just the idea that you would be reaching out to this particular group of students?
1: I think the answer to that is yes, but it's too politically incorrect to say that you wouldn't be able to reach out to these um, group of students. There's a lot of prejudice against these kids. Um,
6: yeah. People, people definitely, uh, it, it brings up an interesting uh, connotation when you start to talk about doing what we're doing, I think, with, with at-risk kids. Uh, even even putting the computers out into, the, into their homes and, and doing that, I mean, we had people even within the district that were like, we can't believe that you're, that you're going to give these kids a computer. They can't even bother to get up and come to school and all these different connotations. I mean, it's,
0: it's definitely something that, that needs to be addressed, I think. So how do we define that population? I'm sorry, Bruce, go ahead.
5: Well, I was saying we could provide you a, little bit, a list that is at least 10 items long on the reasons why people were resistant to not school starting with the title, not
0: school. Right, so do you define the population the same way that uh, Johnny and Jean have? When when someone asks you who are these students, what do you say?
6: They're uh, at-risk students, uh, so they've either dropped out of school uh, or they're at risk of dropping out and are well behind in the educational process for us. Um, so we go by the same qualifiers that the State of Michigan that would consider an at-risk uh, pupil, so we, we follow that as well. Um, but a lot of times our students typically come to us at about age, you know, sixteen, sixteen on average. They come to us a little bit younger, sometimes a little bit older, but uh, on average they're about sixteen point five and and have about five credits. So they're well behind in the educational process and haven't had a lot of success there, um, and and really they're. they're as an opportunity, I mean, the emotions that the families display and the students display is, it is pretty overwhelming of uh, having an opportunity that they can actually uh, engage in learning and, and, and the process and, and start to get some of that success and engage back into the learning process. And I think go ask, just, go, go ahead.
5: I wanted to point out that when you, you're dealing with a junior who has five credits, in Michigan we're now requiring uh, 24 credits to graduate.
0: Sorry, Bruce. We lost you after 24 credits.
1: So, so what he's saying is um, we've just raised our um, graduation requirements. It used to be the only thing that was absolutely required would have been government and Jim. Um, and actually I don't even think Jim was <laughs> in <with his> government. <laughs> um, and, and so now um, they were saying that it is required, and I think it's 22 credits, it might be 24, but I think it's 22 right now, um, credits to graduate. And we have juniors, that means that they have two more years to go. That have five credits, and that, thats an average. So, so clearly these kids are not on track um, to graduate, and clearly, given the, those numbers, um, you know, they're—they're they're not going to stay in school.
6: How it, big it, a all- is the
2: population?
6: That's a good question. In, in Michigan, right now, uh, or last year, there was about twenty-one thousand dropouts. But we live in—we uh, well, service Wayne County, uh, which has about three hundred thirty-five thousand students. Um, but the actual, you know, if you, those are just the dropouts, right? Uh, which is near crisis proportion. And then you start to look at the number of students that are off track uh, and actually failing. And you know, a lot of our kids, you know, and those five credits are deceiving because it'll be uh, elective credit that they come to us with and, and not having any of the core or not having any of the 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 real requirements that they're going to need to graduate. So. It's pretty staggering.
1: So, so, the numbers when we take a look at them on a statewide basis, um, we're probably looking at around 50, 40 to 50,000 students a year in Michigan um, who are out of school or um, are at high risk of um, dropping out of school because they're so far behind in their credits.
0: Bruce, we got a little clue there from Jared How about your. Yeah, mic? I'm
5: working on. I'm working on that. Does that any better?
0: You're sounding clear right now. That's for sure.
2: Except now Thanks. we just lost you. Oh, yeah, Go ahead. Well,
5: I think it's important to note that. So Michigan's ramping up our our graduation requirements to have this really world class curriculum and set of standards. And the students that are getting are getting hit are the ones that are um, are the ones that not school applies to you know, appeals to the most, right? They're not they're not succeeding in traditional school without these new requirements, but now with these new requirements it just shortens the window in which they can have success. And so a not school play in an offering in Wayne County
2: specifically addresses the need that that they're feeling both because they fail in the traditional classroom but also because of the heightened
0: Sounds like we lost you again, but also because of the heightened requirements for graduation. Yeah. So, um, okay, so let's sort of shift, uh, well, I guess one last question. So are you seeing any measurable success at this point? Is the program too early to tell that or how do you quantify success um, in Michigan?
1: Well, honestly, um, we started surveying our our, um, our students. And as we were saying, the, the average um, researcher comes in it's with five credits. Within from February to um, the beginning of July, They've already earned up to two and a half credits, so we're looking at a forty percent increase in in a matter of um, six to nine not nine months, but in the matter of six months, forty percent um, increase from what it took them two years to um, earn in a traditional school setting so clearly we're doing something right and that's engaging them in the learning process, right. keeping the focus on on their learning, keeping the focus on um, what they're interested in and when that happens they can start moving
6: forward. And you you can also look at it from from just the the success of the program by means of of students wanting and voting with their feet really, right? So we started with 180 students in in February and we're currently at 540 students. So uh, there's there's clearly a need out there that they're responding to and we're, we're meeting where they're at.
1: And and the population is going to be changing a little bit, and that is um, in Michigan. And everybody laughs at us because we do the whole hand thing, you know, with the um, (laughs) with the mitt. But um, in the Upper Peninsula, yeah, in the Upper Peninsula here, um, where we have a a large um, Chippewa um, tribes population, they're very interested in um, something like the not school program, and and they do fall into that at risk category. But they're also at risk just because of the, um, the landscape of where they're at is it, just a hardship for them to get to school. So now we're looking at a lot of different reasons why some kids just can't get to school.
2: So it is, uh, go ahead, Bruce.
5: And I just wanted to say, um, we, this project is tracking um, the success that we're having with our virtual school waiver. Uh, so we provide a virtual school waiver to schools that want to do 100% online virtual learning. And on its own, the Westwood program is w- one third of the full-time virtual enrollments
2: across the state. Wow. No, that, that is a product of being lo- that, That's a
5: product of being in in our largest county. But it also is an indication that students are signing up for this type of virtual education over a more traditional course
0: or class-based approach. So are students in traditional school opting to move to the program, or are you getting more students who are already out of the system who are hearing about it and coming in?
6: Get a real mix, actually. Uh, probably one of the most blended programs in, in, in Wayne County, as far as economically disadvantaged boy-girl. Um, right down the line, and, and we do get a mix of those that have traditionally dropped out or those that are have, have elected to uh, move forward with this because they don't feel like they're going to be able to to graduate in the traditional model.
0: So one of our regular guests on the show is Michael Horn, who's a co-author of Disrupting Class, right. and, and, and when they're looking at these programs they often kind of do the numbers, they do the math, sure. because the programs have to make sense from the standpoint of what kind of funding you're getting and are are you able to cover the cost of the program with the average daily allowance that you get per pupil?
6: I'm gonna actually I could say absolutely yes we can, but I'd like to turn that over to Bruce since he's kept us very on a, on a tight uh, measure <laughs> of, of, of funding to, to ensure that this is a viable, replicable model.
2: <laughs> it's
5: a good way to put it, Glenn. So, so to get the project started, um, we put a Title II-D grant in, in the field and Westwood responded uh, and we, we maxed out that award at $300,000 and that essentially paid for the equipment to bring the first 180 students on. But those 180 students um, came on at the time where it would generate about 25% FTE or full-time equivalency for Westwood as new students and I think that, that's important is to understand that these are represent represent new students to Westwood not students they lost and are bringing back but new students so in the fall those 180 counted for a hundred percent FTE and that based on that Westwood felt comfortable investing in the next 360 units of of uh, the computers the broadband connectivity the other elements that make up the program and so that's how they were able to scale using foundation allowance or Full-time equivalency dollars. So we're not putting extra um, grant money into this program. We're using state-funded um, resources. I mean, these the, in Michigan, the state pays about between 7,500 and 8,300 dollars per student, and that's what's paying for this operation. And and that's the power of this model. It's not additive in any way. It, it, once you get the program up and running, it's self-funding, much like the Florida virtual model that. Um, that the disrupting class authors use to, to make their forecast. But unlike Flora Virtual, which counts one class here, one class there, a supplemental model, this is 100% enrolled. So we are generating um, equivalent of 12 semester length courses for every one enrollment. So when you look at the models that, um, that the disrupting class authors forecast, it's models like not school and 100% enrollment that's going to drive uh, the adoption of online learning and in, in, in significant growth over the next 10 years.
0: So can we shift back to Jean and Johnny for a second here? And uh, Jean and John, do you have any response to what you're hearing? I'm, uh, my guess is that this is not new to you. You're, you're probably pretty familiar with what they're doing. Is there a formal relationship between the two programs?
3: Uh, well, I think so. Um, you know, we're, we're quite involved in some other work and we've been building um, an interesting, um, I think, shared relationship and we're going to bring some other people into that was we're, we're just involved in something very similar in Australia with the indigenous population so we're particularly interested in the um, in the, the work with um, um, uh Native American Indians so I think the whole uh, looking at an international dimension for me is fascinating and, 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 you know, that formality really, I think it started to put it together in a way that we never thought was possible but we would always hoped was possible. In terms of, of going back a step, I think that, um, you know, for us we have always had to come in at the cost per child. You know, we can't come in at a cost per child that's greater than the amount a child gets from the government for going into school. Every child has a price on its head and we have to meet that or, or better it or we wouldn't survive. So in terms of self-funding, the model has always been built to do that. Um in terms of the Westward model, what's interesting for us I think is that when we originally built Lux Fool, there were certain things we had to do, you know, as part of our contracts and Um, We wrote a sort of vision paper that saw a number of things happening and several of those things included more blended approaches, the ability to go into a school, a learning environment or somewhere if you wanted to, Um, the ability to pick and choose a little bit more what you could do and where you did it and I think that some of that's been translated wonderfully into the the Western model. Um, You know, that lot of school is is 100%, um, almost 100% virtually fine but actually part of that is dictated by our, our demographics and the fact that in Westwood, um, you know, give you know, some books are going to, into an area and talk to an expert or curriculum lead if they want to, it's exactly where it should be, it's taking it to the next stage and it's so much better use of resources um, than we tend to do with our schools here. Um, you know, we've been doing some work with Sweden, and believe it or not, they're busing kids into school two two, well, actually every day. And some of the bus journeys are two and a half hours there, two and a half hours back. That's five hours a day wasted in travel time. The kid's not going. And he translated that into, say, a couple of, longer sessions really targeted in a school and the rest of the time learning from home, it makes far more sense in terms of learning and far more sense in terms of the economy and the waste of resources where we're worried about global warming and renewable resources and teacher shortages and all of those other things. You know, the way we're proceeding with schools, certainly in the UK in our fixed-place context, makes absolutely no sense in a 21st-century model of learning.
0: So, are you facing some of the same pushback that they experienced in Michigan? Uh, because that's a compelling vision, and, it, and in many ways, it's not just addressing the uh, underserved students, but it's it's beginning to show a vision of education as a whole that is changing. Do you get the same kind of fear or concern that the uh, that the program, um, in some ways, isn't, isn't appropriate or is um, represents a threat to existing ways of doing things?
3: No, I think it represents the sweat. And, and, and often you see it with uh, a lot of work, training and teachers and so forth. And when the engagement isn't working for one reason or another, instead of actually standing back and thinking, okay, what can I do to change this? Does it mean something to the child? And it could be something as simple as, you know, you've got a male mentor with a, you know, um, uh, with a child who hates men or vice versa, you know, little things. Often they revert to type, I'll do what well, I've always done because it's safe. And because we're so policy driven and target driven, in the UK, you know they're very much stats driven. They have to get bonuses, and when you're working for stats in that traditional model, then actually the very small percentages that fall off the age don't really matter. So of course it's a threatening model.
6: I would I would agree. I think it's very threatening to, to the, when you're looking at even the dropouts and having one in five of the dropouts be a straight A student. Uh, I mean we're obviously missing something within the traditional sense that, that it has not kept up with, with where uh, students and, and youth today would like education to be, and there, there's a, an overwhelming response to that in a lot of different ways, and some of it negative, and, and, and some of it uh, most definitely needs to be going in a different direction, but you know, a lot of what we're doing is, is, is threatening. Just the, the structure that Jean and Johnny had come up with just for the staffing piece, I mean, is, is a threatening piece to a lot of ways that traditional schools have run. We have the ability to be very responsive to students anytime there's a need in the environment. You wouldn't see that necessarily in a school. Uh, if we need another teacher, we, we dial up more days, and, and there's lots of ways that we can go about meeting their need, and, and that's the way it should be. And if it comes back to that place, then I think schools, and even in the traditional sense, will, will start to become more successful than the than, than, than way things are going right now, I think. So there's not, they're not
2: getting to enough students.
5: I'd, I'd like just to comment on the, um, the threatening nature of, of not school. That's why I love the name, right? Because it, I mean, just in its, its essence, it, it is not school. And that's why in Michigan, we're focused on this, uh, the neediest part of our population. It follows after the theory in disrupting class that suggests that innovation happens in the margins. And if we can stay focused on this vulnerable, the most vulnerable population, the arguments against not school are weak at the margins, right? The, the arguments against charter schools, against virtual learning, when you're focused on the same students that the traditional schools are trying to service, it, it becomes a very um, tight argument, this versus that, a comparison. Where on the margin, we can find a, num- a number of students to prove that this is successful. That's what not school in the UK was able to do. We're able to translate that here in the United States to our vulnerable population. And, and it weakens the arguments against it. It demonstrates success. It brings the same dollars into the system that a traditional student is following. And, and
0: oh, we had you there till the very last moment. But you're strong and clear until then. <laughs> okay.
5: <laughs> you're back. So I'm, what I'm trying to say
2: is we're following disrupting classes model focusing on the marginal student, demonstrating success, and and that's what's going to lead
5: broad scale adoption in the United States probably the
0: world. As Interesting.
2: Yeah. Hey, and, and
0: go you, ahead, Beth.
1: I was just gonna piggyback on what Bruce was saying, and that is um before we decided before we were um really moving outside of um Lane County to the rest of the state, and when we moved to the rest of the state, um we formed something called Inclusion U.S. um, and and then we have our IUS Global Schools which are similar to the NOT schools and before we took that step, um, we actually had a conversation with Michael Horn um, from the author of Disrupting Class saying this is the model, this is where we see things going and and we just kind of had about a half hour just sit down talk about what he could, you know, he saw coming too and um, it pretty much mirrors what um, Bruce was saying.
0: Interesting. okay, so let's look if we can, Jean and Johnny at what at what it's actually like what's practically like. so I put your slide up here, which I think was the next one you were going to get to, and do I remember that you actually had a different name for the students? were they i want to say researchers? Is that still the case
4: there. Yep. oh yeah Perfect. yes, uh, yes, they are the good researchers. Why well obviously this Start from the theory of making your environment not school. Then the most important thing you want to do is make sure it's not school and you break down every, every preconception. I think we might have lost some people. I want people come back again. Uh, so, yes, we don't want to call them students or kids or pupils because they're either school-based. They're quite patronizing. I think one, one of the issues for our, for our young people, they might feel like they're excluded from learning, but in the grand scheme of things, they're being treated like kids at 14 years old when actually at home they're looking after younger siblings, they're looking after parents, they're having to be the parents in the family, they're not the kids anymore. And so all those words make a big difference to how they feel about themselves. So yes, looking at our diagram, in the bottom right hand corner ish, we have researchers, which is our young people. And I suppose it indicates exactly what they do. They research, their learning is about investigation. Their learning isn't about turning up to a lesson the right day and having the right book open and that presumably means you're learning, even though you could in fact be looking out the window. They are researching. They are looking for their own journeys. And are they in um, groups of six? Not really, no. Um, <laughs> is, uh, interestingly enough, when we began the project in 2000, we did have small groups, and it didn't work. Why not? Uh, two principal reasons. One is if you put them in a group of six, you predetermine that, that group. Who are we to determine who they're going to work with, who they, who they click with, who they are most effective to work with, who they're interested to share experiences with? We're not. We just do it by age or by the first letter of their name or something ridiculous like that. And the other reason, of course, is once you're in a group of six, you tend to get treated as a group. And one thing we know about these young people is they're individuals. And I know it's easy to say everybody's an individual, but I think in this case they are particularly individuals because if you come back to the client group we have. It is not enough that they are just phobic or just sick or just disaffected. We find that the reason they are out of the school system, the reason that they are not being picked up by old age in you know, general scheme is because actually their needs are more complex than that. They are both phobic and they are disaffected, they are both a teenage mum and sick. And once you've got those two variables, their needs are very, very complex and as soon as you treat two people as a group you stop being able to cater for the individual and irrespective of their other needs. So they are all learned individually. They, all, they all learn individually. Uh, above that, we talk about mentors one to six. That's how the mentor behaves. And so mentors assigned to six six ten people. That is a number that they can cope with. That is a number that they can help learn without <laughs> treating them as a group, whilst at the same time being <laughs> customer. Effective. If it was one to two, it might be much much nicer, but it would be too expensive, and we couldn't run. Um, I can keep going round. Are you still there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mentors. Mentors. Perhaps is The one word we've got wrong, but we haven't found a better word.
3: Mm-hmm. We're going to do facilitator. But I can't say that. So. Most people can't sell it, so we gave up on that and called them mentors.
4: I think the important thing is although we call them mentors because they are there to help the researcher, find the doors to go through, to find the learning journeys to start, to find a way of the hurdles that they come across. They are in fact also trained teachers. And this is really important because there's something we must be very clear is we might be a virtual learning community, we might do lots of really cool technical things, but right at the the core of what we do is about a, a relationship between a young person and somebody who understands learning. And of course, who understands learning better than the teacher? Nobody. That's what teachers are good at. Once you've got a teacher to break away from everything they've been indoctrinated with indo- 그- which is about targeting schools and all those things that aren't talking about treating kids as individuals, but about the process in turning over school lessons. So, mentors are like not trained teachers but they're not there to behave like Check- Learning experts, go on, sorry.
0: I was just say, I'm intrigued because uh, I talk, we talked with Michael Horn last week about the report they produced on the Florida Virtual School. And one of the things that kind of stunned me afterwards, not at the moment, but later thinking was that their teachers are, they have the ability to hire teachers for a limited period of time. And every year they're rehiring teachers. So they have an ability to change, which you don't have in the traditional system. And you've just described that you started with groups of six and it didn't work, so you changed. Yeah, and in part it seems like you have the ability to change in a way that's unique or valuable in an arena in which we need to have Neither change, but in which traditional systems it's we hard. We were
4: to very change. very lucky because our remit from the DFES, the Department for Education and Skills at the time, said you need to take have been out of education in the long term. If you like. On a plate, we had the opportunity to take almost any risk we liked. Now, I say almost because, of course, we're working with, we're working with, children's, we're working with children's lives. You can't say fail. But we can start from a blank slate and we can build what is good for them. And I understand, I, mean, I don't think it's much of an excuse, but you understand that there are hundreds of thousands of teachers in this country who have billions and billions of pounds of buildings. And you can't change teachers overnight. And you can't change buildings overnight. We were lucky in the sense we had neither of those things and could do what we wanted.
3: It was also serendipity. I mean, at the time we were in a the university, there were no teachers because there was a teacher shortage. Um, and we couldn't take them out of the existing pool. So we had to go out and hunt for trained teachers. And we found and, and the sorts of brilliant people that we wanted weren't looking for work. So we found carers and people you know, children. and people at health centres and people who were musicians that were trained teachers and wanted to do a day or two a week. We found very clever, enthusiastic people who were keen on learning and, and, and wanted to do it differently from a school. And we also, um, <laughs> as it happened, worked at a university. And if you wanted to go and employ somebody, it took forever. You know, we'd still been here thinking about it five years down the line. What you get around, the only way you can do it is get contractors in for days, and so rent people, hire people for days on suppliers' contracts. And actually, because we had to think of creative ways around the university system and an education system, we actually built an incredibly flexible system. And if I want to change a child's mentor, I can do it. If I want to increase the number of days we're doing maths, I can do it. I've just hired um, a new literacy expert because I wanted an entirely different approach to some of the English we've been doing, and we have just thought something different and to do some maths because I wanted to really focus hard on the, the bottom functional skills, and I wanted somebody really creative to, to think differently. Well, I can do that, and that element of flexibility really makes the whole system. Flexible and
0: able to meet the young people's needs because we can't meet them while are you know. So, Bruce and Beth and uh, are are you experiencing the same uh, capability to be flexible?
3: Well,
5: I'm gonna let I'm gonna let uh, Beth and Glenn talk about that um, specifically. But what I wanted to point out is that what Not School represents is a bundle of innovations that any one could actually change our system. So, if you think about Switching the role of teacher to mentor or facilitator, or switching the role of student to researcher, that innovation in itself would, would greatly transform our education system. But then you wrap it
2: in an online environment,
5: and when you see the, these tools, it's powerful. But that—that's the power of not school. It, it wraps up these evidence and research-based practices that let let us demonstrate success with our most vulnerable population, and and once we demonstrate that success, and, and not school in the UK has demonstrated that success, people are going to be taking these innovations, and, and it really will transform our education
2: system. Uh, Glenn, we, go ahead. Yeah, uh, we've had
6: we've had uh, to answer your question uh, uh, a lot of flexibility in the way that that it's been structured. But uh, you know, one, we, it's a pilot program, so we've we've gotten away from uh, unionizing the entire process so far, and, and so we've been able to hire staff uh, that have the capacity and, and the will to work with the, the types of kids that we're working with and trying to engage. Uh, all of our staff is uh, for mentors and uh, experts are, are certified teachers. Um, so but for uh, mentors, we might use an elementary teacher uh, or a secondary teacher, depending on, on what their their skill set is there, and looking at uh, making sure that they can engage the students that they're working with. They're there as a facilitator or a coach. Uh, so it's outside and above the responsibility of what they would typically have in a district. Uh, so we can uh, they don't need to be highly qualified, but we do ask that everyone is certified, and they are. Uh, but for experts, they would be highly qualified under the same capacity that they are under for NCLB, um, they're the ones doing the assessment piece of what we do, as, as well as uh, they're the other content specialists.
1: And then um, I noticed that Peggy has a question here, she asks, "Do the teachers need to be certified?" So the answer to that is um, yes. The mentors all need to be certified. They can be elementary or they can be um, high school, and I think that's the tr- same in the UK. Our um, learning experts have to be, for for us, we call them highly qualified in Michigan, they have to be highly qualified quote-unquote teachers in order to um, assess projects and give credit or or suggest credit um, for those um, learning artifacts. Our our setup is is very similar to that of um, the UK. Um, Jean and Johnny have been just instrumental in um, working with us to the point where they've Come over, help us immerse our, our um, experts and our mentors in the um, process, so that they understand what we are talking about, and help us shift those um, people in their thinking. So when Jean um, and Johnny were talking about their versatility, that's one of the things that we didn't want to lose. And when we brought that over to um, Michigan, and that is, it's so important that you stay versatile and flexible um, with your staffing needs. Yeah.
5: And this is Bruce. I just want to comment. Um, I believe that our teaching core has that level, that of, level flexibility. of flexibility. We don't see you know it because our, our system doesn't have that flexibility. We have, mm-hmm. some, we have some of the some brightest, brightest people uh, in America, America in our America. teaching America. core and we just have to bring those, those bright teachers to the surface. And I know they exist. I teach a class um, at the master's level for Central Michigan University and to a person. I would have all of my students in that class in this program but it's, it's their rigid, um, class-based, facilities-based structure that's keeping them uh, kind of like in a box. So they innovate in that box and what Not School does, is it removes the walls of the box, all the walls, not just the four walls in class online, but it removes all the walls. In research and evidence-based constructs for
0: success. So I want to do before we break because we've only got a couple of minutes. I want to make sure that we put into the recording links for people to find more information. And uh, in addition, clearly, uh, disrupting classes had an impact on all of us uh, to some level. Are there other resources too that you would want to point people to? And I'm going to I'm going to start putting some some of the links that I have into the the to the chat here. Do we have a good one for uh, Westwood in that program?
1: Um, Yep, and Glenn's putting it in right now, but um, it's www.westwood.k12.mi.us Or you can just Google um, Westwood Cyber High School and you'll get all kinds of
0: things. We didn't get to watch your videos, Beth. Did you want to just say why you thought they were important?
1: Um, really because they were learning artifacts. Um, I, I thought it was important that um, people understood how things can look differently, that it doesn't need to be a paper-penciled test or um, an essay in order to evaluate learning, that it can be a learning artifact, it can be a product, it could be the reflection um, from that student on that um, process and what they've learned. Um, It could be communications back and forth with the mentor and the expert that glean that learning out. And so I I just wanted to to talk a little bit about that and and show some of the products. Um, But that's fine.
6: And and I don't know if we ever got into the fact that we're not course-based. So it's a big shift and and it's project-based, and I think maybe Jane and Johnny touched on it a little bit, but being not course-based gives you much more flexibility in assessing things across content areas. And kind of uh, basically takes the proficiencies and blows them out of courses where we've decided to stick them, and puts them in more applicable sense that you can
0: actually give real world the meaning to, to to the work. Good. Well, this has been terrific. And if you're thinking about it, let me know if there are other ways in which you think it would be helpful, uh, at least within the classroom 2.0 community or Learn Central, to you know to continue to spread the word. Uh, you know, my guess is that you're you're going to continue to face. Uh, the sense that uh, you're not in the mainstream, but that's where we love to dabble is our, uh, the, the side interest stories and the things that you're doing that um, that ultimately will inform change practice. Um, so, thanks so much for being here. I'm going to clap for you. The, the rest <laughs> of you am using the little clapping hand at the bottom of the participant window. Gene uh, and Johnny, thanks so much for coming on. It's uh, early evening for you. I know you had to stay late to be there. Bruce, thanks for putting up with the microphone. I got an apology email from Tamara about our uh, conference line. So <laughs> we, no. we overcame challenges today. And we I didn't did throw uh, my headset <laughs> like um, <laughs> Nick Saban in last week's football game. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> So I'm, I'm really appreciative of all that you're doing. I mean, I, this is just stunningly fascinating to me and I uh, can't wait to kind of keep up with um, your progress and, and learn more about what's going on uh, and watch, watch it as you move forward. Uh, for those of you who are um, uh, either here live or, or listening later, do please visit learncentral.org where you get uh, the use of Illuminate's Viewroom service for free and you can also hold uh, webinars like this. If you can overcome the challenges, and then uh, we do have a great lineup of, uh, of additional webinars coming up this week and uh, into December. So I hope that you'll you'll uh, participate in that. So thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks to each of you for taking the time out of your day. Uh, uh, even with our technical challenges, uh, sure fun to, to watch you uh, participate and, and glad to have a recording of it. So thanks and have a great day. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: Bye, everyone. Okay, remember you're still on mic.